Before we start today's podcast, we have a favour to ask of our loyal listeners. In the description of this episode, you will see a link that will take you to a site where you can vote for us in the Listener's Choice podcast for 2021. Just search Known Pleasures and click on Vote. Voting closes 30th of November, 2021. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk and new wave movements of the late 70s and early 80s. Please note this podcast was recorded on Zoom, so the audio quality may vary throughout. Feel free to click on the link in the description that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. Now, if you listen carefully, you may hear the sound of drums off in the distance. I still remember where I was when I first heard the drums. The ominous, persistent beat that still chills me to my core. Who were these people? What do they want? Will these drums ever stop? I had heard of this tribe from a friend of mine years before. He spoke of a jubilee performance. He spoke of songs of sexual fetishness, digital tenderness, and even car trouble. But now something was different. Something had changed. There was a new manifesto, a call to arms, a rally cry to unplug that jukebox. I was ready to don makeup and join the resistance. Today, Mark Patrick and I will hold a magnifying glass over Adam and the ants, not to set fire to them and watch them burn, but to illuminate them and watch them glow. So, Graham, it sounds like you've had a pretty busy month at work there. <laughs> I, I thought that was really good. I was quite proud of that. <laughs> oh, it's great. I'm just wondering if we're going to have one of those uh, sophisticated intros for every podcast from now on. I'm setting the bar high at this point. You sure are. Yeah, well, we tend to take turns doing the intro and, you know, I don't have a multi-track studio in my house. Yeah. I'm looking forward to your next intro. <laughs> <laughs> take that. Uh, I guess... As ever, we would start at the beginning. In this case, the story starts with the birth of Stuart Goddard, young lad in 1954, in London, St. John's Wood. And he was born into kind of poverty, really, certainly straightened circumstances. And his dad was physically violent and alcoholic, as well as being a chauffeur. I don't know how those two... Um, I suppose oh, being that an, comes in handy. <laughs> I mean, uh, Adam's dad isn't the first chauffeur. Ian Drury's dad was the chauffeur too, wasn't he? They may have known each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, chauffeurs hang around together. Well, they may have done. (laughs) Well, I mean, you'd you'd be at Heathrow, wouldn't you, holding up your card? You'd be like, hello, Adam's dad. (laughs) Hello, Adam's old mate. Mr. Goddard. Okay, well, it's going to be a long opening 10 minutes of the podcast unless we keep things moving here. So Adam or Stuart grew up in a two-room flat in St. John's Wood in uh, London, and his mum for a time worked at Paul McCartney's house. as a bit of a house cleaner at Paul McCartney's house. And when Stuart was about 12 years old, he did things like taking Paul McCartney's dog for a walk around the block, and that was the very famous dog in um, Beatles mythology. Folklore? Yeah, folklore, yeah. Um, was it Martha? Martha, my dear. Yeah, so Martha. Martha. So, uh, yeah, the most famous dog in Beatles history was walked by Adam around the block 
in uh, London, my Paul McCartney's house. I'm glad and you qualified that uh, as in Beatles history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there are many more famous dogs in Rolling Stones history, but uh, to say nothing of the Hollies and Herman's Hermits. <laughs> he then went to art school. He moved to a suburb in North London, which I lived in, which was Southgate, and I was thought of Southgate and North London as the kind of the centre of existence in the Western world. And Adam described Southgate when he moved there as he said there was a tube station, but that was about the only thing that reminded you that you were in a large, exciting, sprawling and cosmopolitan city. S Southgate was suburbia, the kind of place where people lived out their lives of quiet desperation. So my family was living a life of quiet desperation, apparently, in Southgate. <laughs> and you didn't even know it? No, no, no. I mean, I knew it. <laughs> I mean, my life has been nothing but quiet desperation. <laughs> Just didn't realise that it has sort of communicated itself as far as Adam, who was born in, in a London. In a London. <laughs> you, you don't say. <laughs> so should we get to his first band? Mark, I can tell you're champing if not chomping at the bit. This is Bazooka Joe. Well, Bazooka Joe's claim to fame as far as I'm concerned, and Adam or Stuart played bass in Bazooka Joe, was that... The Sex Pistols supported Bazooka Joe in their very first show in uh, November 1975. Not many people can say they were at the first Sex Pistols gig. A lot of people have been at subsequent Sex Pistols gigs and said or said they were there or weren't there, but not many can say they were at the very first one. Apparently, Stuart, as he was known then, did the usual thing when the Sex Pistols had played, decided, that's it, everything I've been doing is wrong and I'm going to change <laughs> from now on. Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a pivotal moment in his musical career. And I think he pretty much immediately left Bazooka Joe and formed a band called The B-Sides. Would that be? Mm. I was just going to say about the Bazooka Joe show that there was a bit of a ruck afterwards. And Bazooka Joe, certainly some members wore kind of like glittery jackets, uh, you know, like glitter band kind of stuff. You know, um, As was the style at the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so uh, the one of the guys in Bazooka Joe took offence at Johnny Rotten saying, you know, we're going to play you some real music, you know, compared to what's coming up later with these Bazooka Joe uh, losers. So there was a bit of a punch up. Largely, I think the aggressor was the guy in the glitter jacket who just tried to beat the living daylights out of Johnny, who was wearing his I Hate Pink Floyd T-shirt at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so... I wish there was a photo of that. Yes, it was a great moment. That would have been quite something. But um, Bazooka Joe were like a rock and roll revival band and they had song titles like Clerical Officer and Spaghetti. And I like the idea of like anarchy in the UK with the Sex Pistols and then Bazooka Joe come on in there like their, their glitter jackets and say, hello, in a London, <laughs> this is a song called Spaghetti. Forget the Sex Pistols. Here's some spaghetti for you. Yeah, they'll never amount to anything. <laughs> I thought the amazing thing about Adamant liking the Sex Pistols is that in the past, we've spoken about other people who've had this eureka moment by seeing punk. You know, they may have seen the Sex Pistols on the Grundy show or they saw the clash somewhere. When it happened to those people, punk was underway, like it was a thing, mm. and people were mm. responding to that thing. Adamant was responding... <laughs> To their very first gig, like punk wasn't even a thing at that point. Yeah, yeah, so, no, it wouldn't have had any any frame of reference. Yeah, I thought that w that showed amazing foresight from him to think these guys are doing what I should be doing. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. That, I just thought it was an amazing response to that moment. Yeah, mm. well, a absolutely pivotal. I think it's, it's and you're right, Graham. It's he had a real kind of vision of of what mm. the future was going to be, and once again, everything he'd been doing up until then. 
stand wrong. Yeah, I did see a, an interview on YouTube with uh, one of the former members of um, Bazooka Joe. And, oh, right. And the guy said, uh, Adam saw something in this band that I didn't, which is why Adam went on to stardom and I drifted off into obscurity, <laughs> which I thought was a, a wonderful self-deprecating thing he could say. He's still friends with that guy, which is nice. So then it was on to a band called the B-Sharps, did you say? I said besides, close enough. They wanted a name that was clever <laughs> and then less clever. Which seemed funny the first time you heard it. <laughs> um, they founded um, Adam and the Ants or the Ants in May 77. So mm. there was a, I was going to say there was a bit of time between him seeing uh, the pistols. So there's about 18 months of him kicking around doing other things before uh, he had a bit of a eureka moment again and uh, formed the ants. And I, I'm not quite sure when he changed his name to Adam and the ants, but it may have been later than that. But yes, the Jubilee thing came after that. At the time in the late 70s, I think Jubilee was probably my first exposure to alternative cinema. Like later on, I saw things like A Razor Head and Polyester and Liquid Sky and all those mm. sorts of things. But I remember Jubilee being like the very first thing, like a friend took me along. And before then, I'd just seen, you know, Planet of the Apes and Star Wars and <laughs> Jaws, movies like that. How old were you when you saw Jubilee? 16. Okay. 16, maybe 17. Like it was made in 78, so maybe I saw hmm. Yeah, yeah. It and was... how, would, how would you describe Jubilee for, to those who haven't? Um, seen it or who not really know about it. <laughs> At the time, I thought it was mystifying. Like I remember the, the acting <laughs> acting was like I was like, what the hell is going on here? I thought the mm. acting was really bad, although Toya Wilcox was in it and she was quite good. It's a very charming film, but he was trying to capture the spirit of what was going on in 1977, which was the Queen's Jubilee. Mm. Whether he successfully did that or not is open to argument. But Adam mm. saw that being a partner in that film as an opportunity for him to you know, advance his uh, cause of stardom. I remember when I first saw him in the movie, when you first see Adam in the movie, he's at a diner and this girl takes off his glasses and says, you're gorgeous. And yes. um, you saw his star potential there because he was a really good-looking guy. Yeah, He yeah. wasn't a Johnny Rotten style of punk. He, um, mm. he had a, quite a likeable face. Yeah. I think it was no surprise that he went on to be a sex symbol, you know, later on. I was going to say about Jubilee, he'd obviously been a feature on the punk scene, you know, from, from day one almost, um, mm. which was how he ended up in that film. As others did, I think Jordan was in it, his great friend Jordan, who was also part of the punk scene. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. a part of it was also him hanging around Malcolm McLaren's sex shop again, the usual yeah. sex shop at the shop called Sex. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the King's Road, which is where a lot of these uh, faces yeah. were found. So he was there and... I think he always had an idea of he wanted to be a star. So mm. I think he was a bit yeah. like, okay, I'll be in this movie. I can't act. I've never done that before, but yeah. I'll give it a go. For his his take yeah. on it, it was pretty disastrous. He said it was a bit of a mm. mess. Well, the, um, the Susie and the Banshees were involved in the film to start with, and I think they withdrew their consent, so to speak, and they said it was a bunch of hippie nonsense, something mm. along those lines. I think it's considered to be a bit of a cult classic these days, but... But regarding Adam and the punk scene, I think he was right at the heart of it all the way through. I think he might have been at Susie and the Banshee's first gig, like the legendary gig with Sid Vicious on drums. And Marco uh, Barone on guitar. Yeah, yeah, who we'll, who we'll get to, of course. And he knew the 101ers, as in you know, Joe Strummer and the, the Clash and all those kind of people. So the infamous boat trip down the Thames where the Sex Pistols played and you know, Malcolm McLaren manager got arrested and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, Adam was on the boat for that gig. 
he was really in the midst of it and it was only a matter of time in, in the same way as Chrissy Hind was right in the heart of it as well. It was only a matter of time before all these people formed bands of some kind because everyone formed a band. <laughs> Should we get on to uh, some of those early recordings? Is it time for that? We can talk about his first single, but before his first single, his first two songs that were committed to vinyl were Deutsche Girls and Plastic Surgery on the um, soundtrack to Jubilee. <laughs> What do you make of those songs, Brian, as a, um, as a veteran of the film? Well, I've always loved Deutsche Girls. I, I think it's okay, a great yeah. song. It's actually a great song to play on guitar. Uh, okay. Plastic Surgery is good too, but uh, I particularly like Deutsche Girls and I was thrilled at the fact that after he became successful, they, they re-recorded it and, um, and it became a, a bit of a hit for him in, in the UK. Um, yeah, I think it got to number 17 in the UK charts in sort of early 82 which is several years later, <laughs> yes. an extremely good bit of uh, opportunism by the record company. I think it was um, EG who released the, the Jubilee album. That was uh, Brian Eno's label, or Brian Eno was on EG. The first official Adam and the End single was a song called Young Parisians. What do you guys think of that? Because <laughs> it's not representative of any particular genre at the time. <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a punk song. Yeah. Quite strange. I mean, it was completely unexpected. Is what I would say about it. Mm. It's like a 1920s cabaret song. Mm. I mean, literally, it could come from 1926 Paris. I think this song kind of exemplifies everything that's kind of brilliant and peculiar about Adam. And it's going to be, I think, a bit of a recurring theme mm. that he just did whatever the hell he wanted to do. I want to go to Paris with you Just to see what the French boys do that song made no sense whatsoever <laughs> as a first official single, but what? he just was just, just kind of wanted to mess with people's minds a bit. And mm. I think it's a really snappy song. I really like the song, but it seems to have been expunged from the Ant archives in that I, I don't think it's on Spotify. I don't think it's on Apple Music. The record companies, the powers that be, whatever, I don't know, they've said... Let's just pretend that never happened. Deutsche Girls, I thought, was a great yeah. opening statement. And this song, it was just odd that this was how he decided to position himself in the market, as my work colleagues would say. Yeah. <laughs> it was off-brand, basically. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like it too. I was yeah. just going to say what's weird about or interesting about the Young Parisian single is that several years later when he started to have success, it got played again and probably went into the charts again. But the B-side Lady mm. is far more indicative of the kind of music that he was doing. It's a bit more of a three-minute punk kind of thing with cheeky yeah. lyrics. And that in Australia was getting significant airplay ah, okay. on, on Triple Z and maybe alternative stations in Australia a couple of years later. And... This is a song I'd never heard. I was talking about Adam the Ants with my wife, who's, as you know, seven years younger than me. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember that song, Lady. We used to jump around in the backyard as little kids dancing and singing that song because the words are a little bit rude. I saw a lady and ah, she was naked. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah. I've never heard this song. <laughs> what, what is it? And I had to actually look it up like you. I couldn't find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Can I just say that my band used to play Lady? Really? Yeah. Not the Commodore's version of Lady. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure? Well, no, it was definitely guitar drum. <laughs> Sing us a couple of lines, Graham. We'll decide which which we'll version. <laughs> Well, it's just interesting that this song was actually getting featured heavily enough to kind of, you know, it put itself into the consciousness of like yeah, 10 year old yeah. kids yeah, <laughs> singing the naughty yeah. words. And the yeah. rest of us, well, myself and Patrick, not Graham, I never even yeah. came across it. Young Parisians was also, yeah, released later, uh, you're saying, as, as a single 81, and mm. it got into the UK top 10. Yeah. Mm. This, yeah. this peculiar cabaret ish song and where that fitted into. Ant music, you know, people must have been quite mystified. The thing with um, Lady, it was a great riff to play on guitar. Ah, okay. That's why we started playing it. And uh, I was singing, I saw a lady and she was naked. Ironically, I don't think I'd seen a naked lady at that point. <laughs> Outside of the confines of a magazine. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a fun song to play. So there was one more single before the debut album, is that right? That's right. Xerox, to me, is a much better first single for Adam and the Ants. And, and actually, it's one of my favourite songs in his entire catalogue. I've always loved Xerox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The B-side is Whip in My Valise, which is uh, more of the fetish lyrics that the, the critics really hated about Adam and the Ants. They didn't like the sexual fetish lyrics. You've hit on a, a particular aspect of Adam and the Ants and Adam Ant in particular that he was already getting really terrible reviews <laughs> and hardly anyone had heard of him and the music press was slagging him off. So it's not surprising that in subsequent years he kind of reacted a little bit badly to it and was a little bit overly sensitive. Okay, so guys, 30th of November, 1979, Dirk Wears White Socks. Are you guys familiar with it? The first album, yes. Well, I mm. wasn't particularly familiar with mm. it then, but um, subsequently, yes, yes. I, I, think, I think it's great. There's a lot on it that I really like. At the time, I had a, a friend who was a bit of a, a super fan of um, Adam and the Ants. I borrowed all of the earlier singles and Dirk Wears White Socks and I put them all, including the B-sides, onto one side of a C90 cassette. I became very familiar with this album in particular. You're a proper aficionado. Because of him, because he was such a, a big fan. Mm. I don't know what was on the other side of that C90 cassette. Had you seen much of him as in visually at that point? Well, apart from seeing Adam Ant in Jubilee, I hadn't really seen any videos or anything mm. the first album Dirk Wears White Socks I, I really um, like Car Trouble the first song of, of the first cab off the rank so to speak yeah. um, there's a lot of uh, uh, humour in the lyrics like even lines like keep your feet off the upholstery Ronnie which I, I thought was wonderful and keep your feet off the upholstery Ronnie It reminds me of, of The Kinks. It's one of those, uh, hello, yeah. London stories, you know. It's, it's <laughs> mm, mm. I, it I would like to say we've got, we've got the formation of obviously the revolving door of Adam's band, but this is now um, a fairly solid lineup with uh, Matthew Ashman, Dave Barbarossa, Andy Warren on bass. Uh, there's no Marco as yet. He hasn't joined. No. But, yeah, there's some great stuff in it. I was just thinking about the influences on this album, what I hear. You guys might want to say something different. Uh, I hear a lot of Bowie. 
Yeah. Um, I, I hear Gang of Four in stuff like Car Trouble mm-hmm. and even Dr. Feelgood, which obviously is Gang of Four's uh, template as well. And, mm. and the song on uh, the song called The Idea, Graham, you'd be familiar with this. It's got this kind of um, blown out funky bass mm. line on it, which reminds it's me funky. of Parliament Bootsy Collins, which mm. is just like mind blowing to hear in 1979 that these guys were kind of semi referencing that stuff. But they did say they wanted to do something on a funk and soul kind of flavor. Please. That was what they were looking for. It's interesting you say Gang of Four because I was amazed listening to it again recently how riff-based everything was, like songs, like digital tenderness. And Plan 9 failed. Are built around guitar lines as opposed mm, to, yeah. it's not three-chord thrash. It's like, mm. uh, it's really quite sophisticated. And I imagine it was Adam himself who was coming up with this stuff because he was quite a, a capable guitarist. In terms of influences, one person who definitely needs to be mentioned is the Australian singer Frank Ifield, mm. who had several hits in the early 60s. Adam mentions in his autobiography, Stand and Deliver, what a huge influence Frank Ifield. Really? The Australian yodeling style singer whose who's big hit was I Remember You. I don't remember him. <laughs> Once you've got Frank Ifield and the song I Remember You <laughs> in your head, you start hearing it on every second Adam and the Ant's song. I remember. Adam did a lot of yodeling, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. Well, he said he says it was Frank Ifield. That's where he got it from. Yeah, that's right. Which makes sense when you hear it. Um, now, Graham, I wanted to check this with you. Xerox and Car Trouble on the album are different versions, aren't they? They're not the um, single versions previously. Well, in the original version of Dirk, a Xerox wasn't on it. It was just a single. Um, mm. But they did re-record it. We'll get to this in a minute. They did re-record Car Trouble with Marco later on because the, the other band members had left. Before we leave, Dirk, I wanted to mention, I thought Catholic Day and Animals and Men were very XTC. I think he had to listen to um, the first two XTC albums and uh, it seemed to have an effect Mm -hmm. on a lot of people, I think. And I like the song Cleopatra, although he seems to be casting aspersions on her character. This seems a bit unfair. I don't know. (laughs) He has these dodgy sexual lyrics every now and then. I mean, I'm sure Cleopatra had a lot of other accomplishments as well, apart from being Mm. a popular woman. Well, his yeah. image was based on this kind of pervy sex thing. He used to wear the, the mask, the sex mm. mask with the zip mouth and the kind of S&M imagery. That was a large part of what he was getting slammed for by the press in England at the time. But that was his kind of territory that he, he staked out. And I guess a lot of the songs were along mm. those lines. Certainly the live show was anyway. I mean, songs like Whip In My Release and um, You're So Physical. Yeah. The songs that obviously, uh, that's what he's pushing. That was his thing. That was his thing. Just one more influence I wanted to mention uh, is the Beach Boys, the Beach Boys vocals in um, The Day I Met God and Catholic Day again. Yeah. He seems to love to do these, I can't do it myself, but these very high uh, Beach Boys style inflections. You know the song Never Trust a Man with Egg on His Face. Mm. Did you guys think that that was like three imaginary boys? 
That didn't strike me. I never realised it at the time, but I had uh, I had listened to it recently and I thought, oh, he's, he's listened to Three Imaginary Boys, which was released six months before this album. So, uh, ah, yeah, could be. It is quite uh, possible. Did you guys know that... Um John Moss of Culture Club played drums on the B-side of the re-recorded Car Trouble? Well, he played on the A-side as well. If you compare the two versions, the earlier versions of this song with the re-recorded versions, they're far more slick with Marco Mm. on guitar. Oh, I think Malcolm McLaren said it was the best thing that he'd ever done, as in the best thing Adam had done up to mm, that point. Mm. Because McLaren was around on the fringes of all this scene, being the uh, Svengali figure that he was, and he was mm. soon to play a part in um, pilfering the members of the band mm. for his yes. own band, which is a great story in itself, Graham. You want, you want to take that one? What's interesting is that David Barbarossa, Matthew Ashman, and Lee Gorman, who was the new guy on at the time, I think Adam seemed to go to Malcolm McLaren <laughs> for, for a bit of advice on where... He paid him a £1,000 for advice, apparently. For advice, yeah, I know. Didn't Malcolm come up with a mixed tape with a whole bunch of songs for Adam to listen to? Yes. He said yeah. to him, do you want to be a pop star? Do you want to be as popular as Cornflakes? Mm. And he said, and yes, I do. And he said, well, you're going about it the wrong way with this, what you're doing. Mm. He plundered the pirate imagery and Native American style, which was both uh, Malcolm McLaren's idea. Yeah, and, and the Burundi drum thing. Patrick, were you leading to that, that he was given a cassette of Burundi drums? Well, I think what seemed to be the pivotal moment for Adam and the Ants as they moved from the old version to the version of the band that was to become successful, and at the same time, the old Adam and the Ants were about to become Bow Wow Wow, the centre point of it was, was a mixed tape with a whole bunch of songs on it, which Malcolm gave to Adam and the Ants, particularly Adam. And the mixtape included songs by Gary Glitter, Elvis, Chet Baker, there was belly dance music and a song called Burundi Black. And you can certainly hear some of those influences really loud and clear in both Bow Wow Wow and later Adam and the Ants recordings. But the Burundi sound was fundamental to Adam and the Ants' forthcoming music. And it all kind of sprang from a recording of Drummers in a Village in Burundi by French anthropologists released in 1968. And that sound was basically kind of sampled, to use the term very loosely, like kind of stolen and then recorded some keyboards over the top of, which became a bit of a hit for a French musician who used a pseudonym Mike Stevenson. Then John Congos took the beat on the song He's Gonna Step On You Again, which was a big hit later on in the 80s for for, uh, an Australian band. Mm -hmm. And Johnny Mitchell used the sound. So it was kind of being used all over the place. And Adam loved it and it was just so, so strikingly obvious how fundamental it was. Not in a rip-off kind of way, I don't think. No. Both Adam and the Ants and Bow Wow Wow just adapted the Burundi beat. Mm. Malcolm McLaren is the centre of this story because he was the one that had that influence. He then has a meeting with Adam and the three members of the band and sacks Adam. (laughs) 
and takes the other three guys with him, takes the ants with him to form his own band. It's genius. It's just typical Malcolm McLaren. And then kind of follows Adam up the stairs after he disappears in tears and sort of says, you know, are you going to be okay? And sort of, sorry about giving you that idea and then taking your band with you. (laughs) Adam was too much trouble. Adam was even then a bit of a prima donna and a little bit hard to Mm. deal with. And he just went, I don't need another one of those. I had one. yeah, yeah. In that yeah, other band. Yeah. <laughs> Adam had his doubts about those ants mm. already on the on the Dirk Wes White socks. Hey Patrick, don't tread on an ant. <laughs> I'm warning you. They weren't real ants. They left the ants. Ants are industrious and loyal. Loyal, that's right. Yeah, they weren't loyal at all, were they? There's no disloyal ants, not in the animal kingdom. <laughs> they do follow the Queen, so I don't know how that figures with all of this. Do we want to talk about the album title, Dirk Wears White Socks? It's such an unusual album title, and it was inspired, I think, by, by the actor Dirk Bogart. Because he wore socks. white socks. Yeah, he wore white socks. Graham, you want to put this at the front of the whole chat about this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's pivotal. Well, wearing white socks is like, what's the, what? Well, it's a style it's thing. It, I mean, you're making it sound as if that's a reason to, because someone wears a certain colour of socks. That's why you call your debut album by that name. I can understand that. You I might mean, have, you might have, you might do that, Mark. Somebody who's as image focused as Adam was, mm. um, and we completely skipped over when he became Adam, by the way, when he had he had a mental breakdown and tried to kill himself. It's fairly interesting. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, and, and decided okay. I'm no longer Stuart Goddard. I am now Adam Ant. Call me that from now on. Yeah, yeah. That was that was 1976. Yeah, so yeah. So just at the start. Yeah, so post uh, what Bazooka Joe might still have even been going. I'm not sure. Uh, it was in that, that era of punk that he was mm. involved. He was unhappy mm. with what he was doing anyway. So he's been called Adam now for two two and a half years, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah, we also left out the fact that he was married at this stage. <laughs> that's right. And, and live, living with her parents. <laughs> okay, do you guys want to go back and start this podcast again? It's yeah, going to yeah. require all your editing skills, Grant. Yeah, yeah. So Adam Ant was born in inner London. I think on the day he was sacked, he contacted this guy, Marco Peroni, who he thought was you know, the best guitarist ever. And I think it took Marco a few days, maybe or a while anyway, to, to get back to him. But certainly on the day that Adam was sacked from his own band, he thought Marco Peroni's the guy. And Marco Peroni was a few years younger than him, but he had been around. He was an old punk. There's a great quote from him where he says about uh, Glam and the, the glitter band that he thought... Glam was the epitome of human endeavour. He, he kind of felt like that was the high point of music. So as far yeah. as he was concerned, <laughs> he was going to bring something like that to whatever he did next, which I thought was great. Well, I think the glam plus Burundi drums is not far off. You know, like that's the music aspect of the sound, if you like. I've got a great quote from Marco that I just wanted to throw in, which is at this mm. point when, when he was approached by Adam, he said, I hated post-punk even though I was in a post-punk band. Actually, I hated the band I was in. I hated Adam <laughs> and the Ants. I hated Dirk Wears White Socks, all that bollocks. I hated it at all. It was not as good as it thought it was. It wasn't as clever as it thought it was. Banging on about credibility, going on top of the pops and acting like you're embarrassed to be there. If you want to be a pop star, be a pop star. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a marriage made in heaven. With, with yeah, Adam. yeah. Well, that, that ties in neatly with Adam's initial feelings about Marco that he was big, unapproachable and self-contained. Mm, that's I think, very dude. Yeah, yeah, and I think those two quotes sort of 
nicely complement each other. So the two of them get together in 1980, that's what I have, mm. Um, mm. and start formulating this kind of new image, new sound, which is going to go on to, you know, become a huge thing, much bigger than Bow Wow Wow was ever mm. to be, ironically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he really won that fight. He did win that fight. Shall we go on to this? Well, just before we do, I just want to mention that um, that very good friend of mine who got me into Adam and the Ants initially, uh, his name's Gavin, he discovered, or he must have read somewhere, that Adamant replies to fan mail. So Gavin wrote Adamant a letter, and sure enough, Adam, Adam wow. wrote back. Oh, fantastic. I remember Gavin showing me the, the letter, and I was reading it, and he seemed to be really happy about this new album that he was recording. And he <laughs> said, in the letter, he said, it's going to be called Kings of the Wild Frontier. And I've always been really wow. thrilled about the fact that I knew the name of that album before anyone else. I, was, I thought that that was so cool. You could have so, uh, used that story, Graham, back then. You know, it would have given you huge credibility. Yeah. Well, it would have given him credibility. He had the letter. I, I, I'm not in touch with him anymore. I'd love to have actually gotten a transcript of this letter because, um, like, I obviously only read it once. Yeah, that's it was, it was in It was sometime during 1980. It, when it drops, um, I, I must Can stop. You not use I, that must say, no, I must stop saying drops. <laughs> when it was released, yeah, stop talking like a young person. You're doing my head. <laughs> when it was released, I don't know what you guys thought, but it, it didn't. To me, it didn't disappoint. Um, no, no, it, no. The, the first thing I heard was "Dog Eat Dog." I mean, as an opening statement, it couldn't have been more perfect with the tremolo spaghetti western guitar. Yeah, yeah. A really great verse with the harmony vocals. There's no real chorus to speak of. Um, and this wonderful fretting guitar effect. It was just great. And also, in regards to stating their manifesto, this just couldn't have been a better introduction to the world to Adam and the Ants. As they tell the story, they had the opportunity to go on top of the pops uh, because another band had dropped out. And I don't know who it was, I can't remember. But essentially they went on there at the last minute and um, their entire existence and way of life changed overnight after being Mm. on top of the pops. Adam tells it, I think it's nine million people saw it or something. And the next day, everything had changed. Yeah. Stories around, you, you read people saying, I saw that as an eight or nine year old kid. And the next day at school, everybody was talking about this band and it was this huge pivotal moment yeah, for yeah. this, the mania that was to come was, was seeing them with the image. It's so important with yeah. the sound and the image of Dog Eat Dog. Mm. It seems really obvious to me. I heard the Kings of the Wild Frontier album maybe before I even heard Ant Music or heard them at the same time or something. The song Kings of the Wild Frontier itself made no impression on me whatsoever the first mm. few times I heard it. And now it's just about my favourite Adam and the Ants song. <laughs> but given what fantastic singles Dog Eat Dog and Ant Music are, I just think it's it's a remarkable decision for a band that wanted to be massive to go with Kings of the Wild Frontier as a single rather than Dog Eat Dog. I mean, I don't know whether they recorded the single Kings of the Wild Frontier before they recorded the album, but it's not a classic single. I think it was a record company thing again. They were on a new label by then. I think it was CBS. 
Yeah. And yeah. They, they wanted just, that was the single that they went with. Interestingly, the Kings of the Wild Frontier album was released on the 3rd of November, 1980, which was the same day as Bow Wow Wow's cassette pet um, uh, album okay. came out, which was basically a cassette with, you know, stuff on it. And one side was blank, so you could do home taping on it. That was Malcolm's idea. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah piracy but i think we'll all agree the album just came out of nowhere it's felt like mm. it came out of nowhere mm. with a radical new sound completely different look and a huge hit what i keep coming back to is they went from a serious band of kind of with snm flavors and kind of post-punk cred and all that kind of stuff and adam's background in the punk scene to this kind of almost overnight teeny bopper mm. band aimed at young kids with this kind of adventurer you know wild you know, stuff that kids love, and kids just went nuts for this. Yeah, it was yeah, huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah. adults did too, don't get me wrong, but it mm. just seemed to strike a chord with, mm. with children, as I said, you know, mm. eight, nine, 10, or 11 year olds. And, and I really liked it as well. I'm like you, Patrick. I was just, I just remember hearing and being kind of blown away. I didn't know a great deal about them before this, but yeah, yeah. But uh, these singles, um, Ant Music was huge in Australia. Doggy Dog got to number four in the UK. Kings of the Wild Frontier re-release got to number two. Ant Music, I think, got to number one or two. Mm. It was always hard to know how seriously to take Adam because he seemed serious on one level, jokey on another. And Ant Music is almost like a children's song in some ways. Mm. But it was so kind of cool and funky and, yeah, it was just... Oh, irresistible. Was, the guitar was, is, is yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. I love the line in, like you're saying about, don't take it seriously. Don't be square. Be there. You might not like us now, but you will. It's like, okay, well, they're not taking it too seriously. They're actually having yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what an album! Number one in the UK, yeah. number two in Australia. He had the the spaghetti western guitar. Yeah. It was yeah. obviously that he was thinking cinematically. So if mm. ever he used, utilized the the Native American imagery or anything like that, I reckon he was constantly thinking cinematically. He was thinking of movies that he'd seen, and uh, and, yeah, and, yeah, and he's yeah, talking yeah. about heroics and being brave and all adventure that. Mm. and being adventure. in a gang. I think we can all agree that it was a great album. Diffuse the man, the myth, and the music and, and the mm. image in one yeah, package, yeah. which is today still sounds amazing and yeah. almost a fluke if you ask me it was just perfect time yeah. i think it's a pretty patchy album i bought the album i ended up with the the american pressing which quite weirdly they added a song or two and deleted a song or two you know and they included they added an old b-side called press darling which is a song in which Adam is complaining about his treatment in the English music press. Mm. So he's complaining about Nick Kent and Gary Bushell, who are prominent British music journalists. And that's a song that was on the American pressing, mm. the American that's, version of the album, but not the sense. English. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And obviously CBS in the US just thought it was a snappy song, so let's have that and, and get rid of a song we don't like so much. I think it's a slightly patchy album. I think the singles are absolutely patchy? brilliant. Apache. 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 I think Apache. it's an Apache album. That, and they are name check in the human beings. They are one of several, um, as you say, tribes. Like with Bonnie, Giango, Apache, Arapaho. Like with Bonnie, Giango, 
Patchy album. Thanks, Thanks Mark. Try and say that. Yeah. Can I just <laughs> yeah. also say, Graham, your your cinematic reference is really interesting in that the jacket that he wears, the famous jacket, mm. um, in all of the clips and the whole promotion of the album, is was actually used in the Charge of the Light Brigade. It was it was made for that movie. Oh, really? And worn by the lead actor. So he actually used to rent that jacket by the week from a costumer. <laughs> so it wasn't even his own jacket. He was actually hiring it. And, oh, and wow. not long later, Michael Jackson. Uh, mm. called him up and asked him, where did you get that jacket? <laughs> I, I think Michael ended up just <laughs> You'll have to rent it. Yeah, you, um, well, he, did. He, yeah. Said to him, he actually said, I rent it from this place. Here's yeah, the guy's yeah, name yeah. and I'm, I'm buying £100 a week for it or something. <laughs> well, that, the other uh, reference I wanted to make, backing up my cinematic claim, is that on Feed Me to the Lions, there's a big chunk of the overture from Lawrence of Arabia. So he was thinking beyond being a pop star on mm, the charts. Mm, he, he, mm. As I said, he wanted to evoke classic cinema. Mm. That's what I loved about a lot of it. It, it was, it yeah, was, it yeah, was yeah. very um, dramatic. It was a combination of cinematic and theatrical, mm. you know, like mm. the kind of stagecraft almost yeah. was part of it, which becomes more prominent, you know, in subsequent albums. But. Mm. Well, he'd had a lot of time to kind of hone that, I suppose, up, up to this point when he'd made this conscious decision to go all out for pop stardom. I just wanted to mention that um, Chris Hughes produced this album, who was obviously Merrick, mm. the drummer, mm. a.k.a. Merrick, who went on to huge mm. success with Tears for mm. Fears years later. But he was obviously a very handy drummer and producer because the sound is, I think the sound is fantastic. On the 21st of September of 81, they toured Australia and uh, played in Brisbane. Mark, I thought you were there, but you, you obviously didn't go. I No, I didn't go. I mean, as much as I enjoyed this album, I was probably a little bit old to get caught up in Ant Mania, um, unlike yourself, Graham. <laughs> oh, I'm older than you. and I got- You were 16, Mark. Let's not act like you were 25. You were, yeah, no, exactly. just, you were a great age to get caught up in it. I think probably more 12 or 13 would be the Ant Mania target. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I just want to take you back a year before this because in 1980, Australia was in the throes of Kiss Mania. The American rock band had become huge in Australia. I'm looking so forward to the segue here. There's, there's a wonderful segue here. Um, <laughs> in Australia, they became popular, like really popular, but more as a circus rather than a rock band. And the audience was filled with um, parents who'd brought their kids along. So that they were treated like a curiosity, like you weren't coming to see Gene Simmons play a bass, like a wicked bass line. Mm-hmm. You came to see him spit blood and breathe fire. It was a pretty good gig, actually, Kiss, uh, in Melbourne. Oh, okay. I saw it because I was a good age then for that sort of thing. I was 16. Oh, there you go. Very you know, like Mark, who was too, it was too big for that. And I think the same fate awaited Adam and the Ants, so to speak. So the audience of his Brisbane show, was basically a few hardcore fans. There was a top 40 crowd who wanted to hear the hits and there were parents there mm. with their kids. And I remember seeing a woman holding her little son up saying, look, look, honey, there's a pirate on the stage sort of thing. Oh, so wow. it, was, it, was like, it was like being at a Wiggles show. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Adam the Ant was like Captain Feathersword. But um, that's kind of how I felt when I was there. It's like I really liked seeing them and I, they played a couple of early songs, which was great. But uh, it's a pity that they became that because the music was much more interesting than the image to me. But it's so intrinsically tied in with it. As I said, the decision to go this way, I think, was just all interconnected. The the image is just perfect for what he was trying to do in the audience. Oh, yeah, he wanted to be famous. And uh, just as a side note, my, my, my friend Gavin, who was up the front of the stage with his hardcore uh, fans. um, With his letter, with his letter from Adam. (laughs) 
Um, Adam, you wrote this. <laughs> yes, you wrote to me. Remember me? They were up the front of the stage and they kept shouting out for them to play Fat Fun. Now, I don't know if you heard of Fat Fun. That was a song. I don't even think they ever recorded it. But um, oh, it, it was a really that. early Adam and the Ant song that uh, basically it's about, I don't know how to say this and be politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> the enjoyment of a woman with a fuller figure? I'm not sure. Okay. But that, that's what yeah, it's yeah. about. Anyway, they played it. The last song of the night, uh, Adam uh-huh. and the Ants played Fat Fun. Probably because of Gavin. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd say it was because the, the people up the front, they're shouting that out. That's serious ant credibility that he had. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. To, to, to know an early song like that is, is, is pretty amazing. It's unfortunate, though, that Adam and the Ants were soon to take a deep, deep dive into, you know, really no credibility very soon. So he <laughs> well, probably yeah. not well, wanted to tell that story well, <laughs> about six well, months no, later. No, no. Well, this is it. It lost him. Uh, Adam, Adam Ant lost me, lost you guys, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And we're yeah. about to dive headlong into that. And we're about to get to that. <laughs> I think the album's called Prince Charming, isn't it? Stand and Deliver was next, the single, April 81, and I think the film clip. You can't go past the film clip. <laughs> it's almost more about the film clip than, than the music. I didn't think the song was that great, to tell the truth. Well, you know what? The entire England disagrees with you. I know. It was was massive. I I think Adam could have done anything at this point. He did do anything at this point. Ant mania can't be understated. It was just insane. But he just amped everything up into this fantasy land thing and Mm. it just was massive and it just became a huge hit, Standard Deliver. Everything off this album that we're going to be talking about, the third album, was was a huge hit. Incredible. The fact that Adam at that stage, you know, after Kings of the Wild Frontiers, on the verge of, if not having already become the biggest pop star in England, for him to think in my continuing goal to become one of the biggest pop stars on the planet, what about a song about Dick Turpin? You know, it's not a really, doesn't really cry out as a subject. Michael Jackson was not singing a song about Dick Turpin. Patrick, for people who don't know what Dick Turpin is, (laughs) (laughs) maybe you'd like to explain yeah. Shall we go back to Apache album? Is that is that song? <laughs> Dick Turpin yes. was a dandy highwayman? He was, yes. He robbed from the rich and gave to himself. So he was a modern-day Robin Hood. <laughs> Almost. Yes, exactly. And the film clip features his girlfriend, his on-off girlfriend at the time, Amanda Donohoe, soon-to-be famous actress, Mm. and she was really young. That got together when she was 16, and Mm. she was maybe 18 by the time of of the Stand and Deliver clip. She also features in the Ant Music film clip. She's also in an episode of Frasier. Yeah, yeah, and she's been in films with Jim Carrey. Oh, really? We should probably mention that um, the previous bassist Kevin Mooney has left to be replaced by Gary Tibbs, from Roxy Music, and a few months earlier, Gary Tibbs had been in the same old scene, Roxy Music film clip. Him and Brian Ferry. Six months later, he's saving Adam from the gallows, sorry for the um, for the spoiler, um, <laughs> in the Stand and Deliver film clip, in full ant regalia. 
I never saw the entire video, so now you've just spoiled the end of it. <laughs> so Adam gets away, you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that's a relief. Are you going to talk about uh, Kevin Mooney's departure? Departure? His, his, his quite dramatic departure? Oh, oh I've, yes. I've, I wasn't aware of the drama. I know that he was enlisted at the time when he was the current boyfriend of Adam's now former wife. Oh, really? And I think that's how he got into the band. Do you want to talk about how he left Graham? Because Patrick obviously doesn't want to. I refuse to. (laughs) Well, I I know the story. Not on my watch. They they were playing at a Royal Command performance. I think Kevin Mooney at the time was being a little bit disillusioned at the direction they were taking because he was a punk and he was he probably thought he was joining a punk band he kind of went along with the uh, the piracy and the uh, the whole image for a while but i think the fact that the band were here on a stage entertaining the queen was kind of ant- antithetical to the whole punk ethos it was so as if punk had never happened it was <laughs> that's right yeah now i like kevin mooney i think i think he's great but um yeah so basically at the end of the uh, the performance. I think when he broke a string or something. He no, he broke his bass uh, strap. His guitar strap broke, oh, so he was okay. kind of swinging his bass around like being an idiot. Like I'm not really playing this because they were miming it. Only Adam was singing, and so he was making a point that we're miming this and it's all ridiculous. And, and Adam did. was. If you watch the clip, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Adam's kind of glaring at him. Yeah, he's so angry at the end. Yeah, and then at the end they do their little bow and it's just kind of like, what are you doing? And I think it was pretty much after that he was fine. Yeah, he left then. He's a man of his principles. I like that. Man of convictions, mm. unlike Gary Tibbs who saw an opportunity and uh, <laughs> did a mid-year and got in there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to attack mid-year one more time. You're not saying anything, Graham. It's me. Adam Ant is the most opportunistic pop star this side of mid-year because he saw an opportunity and he ran this with it. This side of mid-year. <laughs> how, did, how did mid-year become the benchmark for, for cynical opportunism? <laughs> Ask midge. Ask midge. That's all right. Well, I just like it on record that I... Do not endorse Mark's view of Mijor. That's all. I think he's fine too. Thank you. That's one out of three. So, stand and deliver, number one. You're wrong, Patrick. Mm. It's massive. Everybody loves it. (laughs) Hang on. I'm going to have to roll back the tape to to me not liking it. uh, I think you'll find that was me who said he didn't like it. I'll rewind the tape and check it out. I didn't think the song was that great, to tell the truth. Yep, that was me. I thought it was all just becoming a little ridiculous, and this was... Well, obviously, Prince Charming was released the album in November 81, and this is like just a year later. This is all turned into kind of pantomime, Mm -hmm. which is essentially what it was, um, which must bring us to Prince Charming. Yes. Yes. 14th of November 1981. The most bizarre number one single I think I've ever seen or heard that I can recall anyway. Yeah. It's it's such a weird, I don't even know what you'd call it. I, I have no reference points apart from some kind of, I mean, if you put it on in the Middle Ages, that dance floor would be full. No problem at all because it's got, it's, it's a floor filler for the 15th century. It's so strange. The video, the music. Mm, mm, it's really, mm. if you were trying to describe this song to somebody, I don't know where you would start. Yeah. Um, no, no. Yeah. No. But once again, number one hit, yeah. what do I know? Yeah. And peculiarly, um, it was kind of a ripoff of another song, 
War Canoe by Ralph Harris. Really? Yeah. So, so there was so, Ralph Harris says there's a lawsuit about it and Adam yeah. and says there never was. Ralph, the Australian singer Ralph Harris, uh, American listeners may not know who Ralph Harris is. Uh, yeah, Ralph says that Adam and the Ants paid him quite a large chunk of money to settle. And the song, if you listen to War Canoe, it is strikingly similar. Really? Um, oh, I'm going to have to listen to this. But I think the melody of War Canoe perhaps came from a traditional earlier Or Maori music. or Pacific Islander track. Something yeah. along those lines, yeah. yeah. So yeah. he's ripped it off somebody anyway. But even the lyrics have certain similarities. All together, all together, lean on the pedals, lean on the lift up silently. But how much makeup? Was Rolf Harris wearing? That's what I want to know. Was he dressed as a dandy highwayman? Is what I want. <laughs> well, unusually, that's when Aussie Frank Ifield was around as well. So I don't know whether there was a huge Australian influence in inner London at that time. How many in, times are you going to say inner London in, in this podcast? Adam's food <laughs> room. Are you, are you being paid by the inner London borough <laughs> to say this over and over? Oh my just listen to the commercial at the start of the podcast. <laughs> All will be revealed. I think we can agree it's a pretty unusual number one. Absolutely. And the album itself, how do we feel about that? I have to just say the third single, Ant Rap, is, I don't use the word lightly, but shit. It's just <laughs> terrible. I mean, it's, it's got no redeeming quality whatsoever, but it went to number three. Mm. I don't know. Well, Other than anything that he did. It is the perfect song for him to introduce the band, you must admit. It is, it is an immaculate introduction <laughs> of him and his men. Yeah. And what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am on record as a fan of this song. In fact, I think I might have even rapped the uh, chorus you, you on a previous podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I hated it when it came out. And now, I, I don't know, there's something about it I think is really funny. got to give him points for, you know, influencing EPMD and Eric B and Rakim, you know. They they all cite him as influences. Public Enemy loved him. <laughs> Run DMC never stopped talking about yeah. uh, mm, rap mm. the song, yeah. Look, this whole album just strikes me as he's run out of ideas and half-finished songs. The, the image in the videos is where all the thought has gone into, but I, I just mm, don't hear mm. a lot of songs. The song Sex I thought was quite good. Yeah, I don't mind Scorpios. It's got that 60s kind of Austin Austin Powers kind of vibe. But there's stuff like Mohawk. I don't even know what that's about, what's going on there. There's just a lack of vision and clarity on the album. With the first song, Scorpios, I thought that was a complete mess of a song. I didn't know what was going on there. It's like they had all these ideas and they played them all at the same time, so there's no real arrangement. Just an onslaught of music. The two songs I like were That Voodoo and SEX. With, with, yeah, with the, the guitar two, on and SEX is great. There should have been more of that. I yeah, just think they had to do it very quickly. They were in the middle of all hmm. this touring, huge success. Yeah, this album comes out a year later after Kings of the Wild Frontier. And as I said, it was massive success. Just, I think we can all agree it's kind of hard listen. It's a hard listen, and 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 he's 
like I know what sort of a songwriter he's he's capable of much better songs than this mm. and it's just yeah maybe it was what you say you just something yeah. they had to do really quickly well if focusing on on the negatives to start with a song that I loathe on this album is Five Guns West <laughs> When Adam does his cowboy song thing, his Wild West thing, and he did it with Los Rancheros on um, Kings of the Wild Frontier, which I also dislike a lot. When he's singing in Five Guns West, I'm a big tough man with a big tough plan. I'm picturing Benny Hill. It literally, including the arrangement, could be a Benny Hill song. Mm. And it's so peculiar in that respect. I do like some songs on the album for sure. So Mile High Club has a bit of a Kings of the Wild Frontier kind of tribal feel to it. I like Mohawk as well. And I like bits of other songs. So Picasso Visita El Planeta de los Simios is truly bizarre. It seems to be about Adam suggesting that Picasso ripped off other artists in his work which is an unusual subject for Mm. the biggest pop star in the UK to be addressing. And the thing that I really appreciate or respect in some way about this album is just how weird it is. Mm -hmm. It is the weirdest, weirdest album because it's got those kind of pantomime-type songs. Um, It's got Wild West songs. It's got, you know, the kind of tribal Native American kind of stuff. It's got a Peter Allen-style Brazilian flavour song to open it. (laughs) Um, And it is just really, really, really strange. And Mm -hmm. the fact that by this stage in his career, someone who you might perceive, some might perceive as a cynical opportunist, just doing everything he can, being endlessly ambitious, has not recorded, to the best of my knowledge, a single love song. All of his songs are just really odd mm-hmm. songs. There are love songs. He's really clever. There are love songs, so to speak, in the visuals. In his film clips, there are love stories, but his songs don't actually aren't mm-hmm. actually love songs. And there's certainly no doubt that, that Adam and the Ants were just absolutely like the biggest band of, of the last decade probably at the time. I think they had seven top ten singles in 13 months, mm-hmm. courtesy of young Parisians. All the coming old back. stuff. Yeah, mm. Kings of the Wild Frontier being re-released. But literally, if you can imagine, in the course of basically a calendar year, listening to, you know, like watching Top of the Pops and listening to the radio and hearing one new top ten song every seven weeks mm-hmm. from a band mm. and really diverse as well. Yeah. From Prince Charming to Young Parisians to Kings of the Wild Frontier. And then uh, Deutsche Girls getting to number 13. So that isn't even in those seven top 10 singles. Mm. I really respect the fact that he was prepared to do just whatever the hell he wanted. It was a strange kind of opportunism. I do agree that I kind of respect the fact that he's always done odd things as well. Like he doesn't seem to have gone down the easy path. And sometimes to his detriment, he's gone way off the scale sort of thing just in order to be different. I think he's just yeah. singular in his vision. I mean, he, for example, he hates being lumped in with the new romantics. So he started mm. a lot of that look for me. He came mm. out in, in uh, early 1980 with this pirate fantasy look, and he wasn't the only one doing it, of course. But, you know, that was a, he was a big proponent of that look mm. because that's mm. just what he wanted to do. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And he took that and a lot of other, you know, when you think of the 80s, you think of Duran Duran, you think of Spandau Valley, you mm-hmm. think of Adam Ant and all those, those looks, and he was a large part of that. It's just where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do. It didn't, mm. I don't know, I don't think, maybe I'm using the wrong term for him. I don't think he was opportunistic in that he had a clear plan of anything. I think he just did whatever came into his head. Whatever yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy kind of idea that was. And if it worked, great. Yeah. <laughs> and it obviously did. <laughs> for, yeah. for a while. Yeah, for a few years it worked big time. He went for it full throttle as well. So oh. you got the sense that he just had 100% commitment to Prince Charming, 100% commitment to the ant rap idea, like all of these peculiar kind of disconnected notions in a way. Yeah. Imagine taking these songs to the record company. Imagine playing in the demo for Prince Charming. If you ever hear it, you can. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just like, what the hell is this? Yeah, and yet yeah. it worms its way into your, your brain after mm-hmm. a while as well. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also the most striking thing about him and one of the reasons why the music press continue to hate him, I mean, they hated him back in 78 and we're now at sort of the end of 81, start of 82, is that he was every step of the way he said he didn't have the slightest interest in credibility mm. and in seriousness. And mm. so he was so anti, like, Deep meaning philosophies where only showbiz losers, you know, like. Yeah, he said, I'm a song and dance man. That's what he described himself yeah, as an entertainer. Yeah. So, yeah, when you said he had a sense of humour about some of these things, I think that was part of that too. Yeah. And he said, I want to be thought of as Frank Sinatra, not David Bowie. And kind of a bit of an over overreaching he, either way. Yeah, he, he may have fell between those two stools somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think the fact that he was committed to the song and dance man stuff, the entertainment stuff, I think completely reframes what, what Adamant was about. And that's where the visuals were maybe more important for him than for any single musical artist of his era. And that's where the MTV era fits in so perfectly as well. Should we move on to Friend or Foe on that note? Because that was his kind of really big success in America came with that album. There was the single, the advanced single. We're talking about Goody Two Shoes. Which went to the number 12 in the US. Massive hit for him and number one in, a, in the UK again. And you know what? I actually don't mind it now that I hear it again. I didn't mm. like it at the time. It's kind of rockabilly. It's kind of yeah. got that vibe to it, you know, and Marco's got his little, you know, 50s guitar twang in there again. And and he's gone solo by this time, of course. He's kind of jettisoned the band. Uh, yeah. October 82, the album came out, and he's now just adamant produced the yeah. album. He and Marco produced it. So I guess he's, he's hit another one out of the park <laughs> with another yeah. bizarre, bizarre video. And a bizarre song as well. I mean, to, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke. You know, his, What did he his, do? He, well, that's the question. That's where the subtle innuendo followed. I think you'll find it. <laughs> ah, must be <laughs> but, something inside. <laughs> but his father was an alcoholic, his grandfather was an alcoholic. As a non-smoking, teetotal, non-drug taker, you know, he was a real anomaly. And I love the fact that he turned it to his advantage in, as you say, such a peculiar song. He references Al Green, someone pretending that they're Al Green, Al Green. It's like, this is on a song that you want to be number one all around the world. Why are you talking about someone else pretending to be Al Green? And it was Mm. apparently Kevin Rowland from Dexy's Midnight Runners who he was referring to. It's like, why are you talking about the singer from Dexy's Midnight Runners five seconds after you're talking about the fact that you don't drink or don't smoke? (laughs) The funny thing about him is that he had a a massive 
sexual appetite. He was like a major pants man, and he may have wanted to reference that in the song because oh, he didn't drink and smoke, but he certainly made up for it with this kind of we'd call it a sex addiction these days. Mm, but, you know, yeah, if you read yeah, his yeah. autobiography, it's just yeah. it's pretty. It much, is endless. It's endless. It's just if he's not talking about music, he's talking about the amounts of women that he had sex with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, no, absolutely. Goody two yeah. shoes, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be using the beat button quite a bit on this one, Graham. We're allowed to say ass, I think. It's fine. It is adult content. Um, yeah, so Graham, how, how were you uh, positioned in the ant world? In I wasn't really, like I heard Goody Two Shoes, but I, I certainly didn't hear this album. I thought Paranoia was setting in at this point. There were too many songs about him. This was my big yeah. criticism of him. There was a song called Friend or Foe, which is actually isn't the baddest song as I once thought. A second mm. single, yeah, that, was, that yeah. wasn't bad either. Yeah. Um, but he's still listening too much to his critics, and he did the same in uh, Desperate Not Serious. It's got a nice spy movie kind of guitar, but mm. it's a bit of a nothing chorus. And he's still having a problem with the press. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, Patrick, yeah. you mentioned Press Darlings before. He handled it so much better with Press Darlings than all of these other yeah, yeah, yeah. subsequent songs about the press. And yeah, he should have. I think yeah. he just reached that level where that's what he's got to complain about. You know, mm. um, about that kind of thing. And but it's like, why? <laughs> just just get on with your life. There's that you song know? called um, Here Comes the Grump where yeah. he talks about, you know, you, you start to slide, you know, then, then yeah, you know, once, yeah. if you, once you've had a number one, the only way is down. That yeah. song reminds me of Madness, by the way. It sounds like a madness song. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, but he's focusing on all that sort of stuff, but there's a lot of half ideas. You yeah, know, there's yeah. lots of brass and drums and stuff, but... There's not really much going on there. The Doors cover is good. Hello, I love you. I think it's actually quite good. Why why he would put that on there, I don't know. But that's quite yeah, good. Yeah. As well. It's interesting that um, he went with brass. Like he didn't mm. go with the synths that everyone else yeah, was using. Yeah, yeah. There's there's hardly any synthesizers. It's all, all very organic in in his instrumentation. Yeah, and it's very open as well. I think like it's there's a lot of space in the recording. There isn't much else going on mm. other than the very big echoey tribalist kind of drums, a bit of bass, not much, a bit of Marco often doing his spaghetti western guitar stuff, mm. and some chanting or singing, and that and brass. I like the sound of the album, but there aren't a lot of actual songs. There's not it. a lot of ideas in that song made of money. The chorus just goes, do, 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 you know, and you might say, well, the police had a huge hit doing something similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just sounds like he hasn't got any words for that chorus, so he's just yeah. going to do that. Once again, this yeah. is a year after the previous yeah, yeah. song, so they're not well, in these albums out. Well, there is some, um, I did like one line on made of money it's a song about his wife or perhaps now ex-wife who wanted a lot of money from him perhaps in a divorce settlement i'm not sure whether it was a divorce settlement as such but anyway it was his wife you know i'm not i'm not made of money and he says you think that i'm made of readies as in ready money you think that i'm made of readies that makes me choke on my shreddies that makes me choke on my shreddies which is shredded wheat breakfast cereal for those who don't know what shreddies are and i I don't know. I laughed out loud when I heard that line. That's a great line, yeah. That was pretty good. <laughs> he could have rhymed it with so many other things, you know, sheddies, teddies, all, all sorts of things. Shreddies is the, the, no the image of, of Adam getting stuck into his breakfast and choking <laughs> on his shredded wheat while he thinks about how 
the woman he used to love, who changed her name from Carol, I think, to Eve, so that she mm. could be Eve to his Adam. Wow. So she, she she didn't lack, you know, devotion. And now, obviously, they've they've fallen out, and he's choking on his shreddy. Well, did she take the last name Ant as well? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think the in-laws had a lot to deal with. <laughs> yeah. With just Eve, yeah. Young Adam, you know, living in the house with them in the early months of the marriage, never mind their daughter deciding to call herself Mrs. Ant. <laughs> when, when he wasn't attempting suicide and changing his name, you know, he was a bit of a handful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, I mean, the episode of him attempting suicide was extremely traumatic, so, you know, we certainly wouldn't... Gloss over? ...underplay over. the seriousness of it. And he's had mental health issues all... It continues. ...all, all the way through, yeah. for sure. And, mm. and if you read his autobiography, it is really stark and, you know, like after the success years, you know, what he went through, you know, you wouldn't want anyone... To go through, so he's been, you know, extraordinarily courageous from beginning to end, really. So, you know, we should certainly give him give him credit for that. I, um, I will say that, that this album, though, with none of us is a huge fan. Once again, was a massive hit, number number five in the UK, number sixteen in America. And they're talking about readies and choking on your shreddies. <laughs> yeah, he will right. have made some serious readies out of this album. And I did like the detail that when he toured the US and played Hello, I Love You, Robbie Krieger from The Doors joined them on stage to play Hello, I Love You. And the idea of, like, the original guitarist from The Doors being on stage with Adam and the Ants, <laughs> you know, there's something about that that's pretty appealing. Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Hello, I love you, let me jump in your game. We are leaving his story now after the Friend or Foe album, but even though he might have left post-punk behind, in the next 12 months after we leave him, he records an album featuring Phil Collins and Frida from ABBA. He performs at the legendary 25th anniversary of Motown show where Michael Jackson debuted The Moonwalk. He did an ad for Honda Motorcycles with Grace Jones and he started going out with Jamie Lee Curtis. So he's going to be all right without us, basically. Yeah, I think. That's right. so, so things didn't work out too well for him after this. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, the next 12 months, his life was pretty traumatic, you know, psychologically all the way through. But there were certainly interesting days ahead for him, mm. not least in 2017 when he came to Sydney and when Graham and I saw him play. And he was great, wasn't he, Graham? I really enjoyed that show. Um... On the night he played Ants Invasion, which is a song I always liked on Kings of the Wild Frontier, but I didn't realise how great a song it was until he played it that night. It's all just built around this repeating guitar line, but it's yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's fantastic. And he played it. He played the line, the guitar line, when we saw him. Well, he was resplendent in a Napoleonic-style hat. Yes, yes. Had two drummers, uh, including one in full kind of Marie Antoinette kind of hair and dress, but the thing I remember most is going to the toilets and seeing a whole bunch of guys, kind of overweight middle-aged guys, applying their stripe <laughs> on, on their face. And it was, yeah, it was, it, it was exactly like when you saw them in 1981, Graham, except these people should have known better. I just think he's a great character. He's, he's a fascinating guy an extreme person, singular vision, completely unique and quite unique to come out of the punk scene. There's nobody like him and probably the biggest pop star that ever came out as a solo artist out of the punk scene. I don't think there's anybody that can top him and I think he deserves 
you know, our respect and our interest for that. You might not like what he what he did, and a lot of what he's done is kind of beyond me, and I can't understand it. But I still mm-hmm. find him a fascinating guy, and and worth looking at. I think it's a shame that he went from one of the great seminal punk bands of the late 70s to one of the more interesting pop bands of the 80s. Then he drifted into paranoid pop star obsessed with his own fame to being almost a joke within the music industry. And I think he kind of deserved better than that. But I was saying um, in regard to uh, Patrick and I seeing him recently, uh, I thought thankfully... I'm just glad he's back to performing because he's airing all of his music live from Xerox all the way to the latest album. Mm, yeah. And I think if he becomes one of those one of those heritage acts like the Human League who are featured at festivals and they only perform their old songs to an ageing audience, then, you know, that's not a bad place to be, I think. No, no. And, I mean, I think the uniqueness of Adamant and the absolute focus of his vision, what he was trying to do at any given time, he was thoroughly kind of devoted to, and he just knew what he was on about every step of the way, even though it frequently didn't make sense, probably to anyone other than himself. And the fact that he was as much a vaudevillian performer as a musician can't be really highlighted enough. And the visuals were such a key for him. The stage was really his art form, and the music was a backdrop to it. So that's why I think his songs, particularly the last couple of albums, were so kind of piecemeal and and so weird and half-baked in that he was just so much more focused on the visuals than the music and being a a performer in the broadest sense of the word. But I just really admire someone who just did exactly what he wanted to do. And that is really about as punk as you can get. (laughs) 